Welcome to episode 49 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. The countdown continues. My book will be available on July 30th. Want to get a free copy of Croissants vs. Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking at Conferences? Join my launch team for the book, and you'll get an advanced copy to review, and will be notified when it will be available for free on Kindle. I'm very excited to share this with my listeners. Visit RobbieSamuels.com slash launch team to sign up. On the Schmooze is a proud headliner on C-Suite Radio, which is part of the C-Suite Network, a network of a half million C-level executives. If you enjoy business podcasts, you should also check out C-Suite TV at c-suitetv.com. Now, on to this week's show. Do you know your neighbors? Today's guest hopes your community ties are strong as they are a great indicator of your health and success. He deeply believes in the power of building social capital. For the last 15 years, he's been strengthening communities by connecting diverse individuals and organizations through civic engagement initiatives. He does this through Social Capital Inc., an organization he founded in 2002. His resume is filled with over 25 years of leadership experience. He was executive director of Generations Incorporated, which under his leadership grew into a national model for intergenerational programming. He also started and directed the Kentucky Community Service Commission, a state entity appointed by the governor responsible for AmeriCorps and other service programs. As founder and president of Social Capital Inc., he has helped them grow into a national leader, exploring how communities can systemically, intentionally, weave stronger social fabrics connecting its members. Pilot programs in three Massachusetts cities proved so successful that they are now replicating their proven model and civic networking tools in communities across the state. Please join me in welcoming David Crowley. Happy to be here, Robbie. Uh, David, thanks so much for joining me from your office in Boston. So I want to just jump right in. I know my audience will be curious to hear a little bit more about you and your day-to-day, but since this is a podcast about leadership and building strong networks, tell me, what does leadership mean to you, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? A mentor I worked with shortly after college had this phrase. He said, leaders are the bridge between ideas and action. And that kind of stuck with me. And, you know, I, when I think about when did I first feel I had that capacity to sort of take ideas that are floating around that people are, might be excited about and actually work with people to, to accomplish those ideas, to execute them, it was actually quite young. I, I In elementary school, uh, it, does, it definitely goes back that early. I was definitely the type to, you know, with brainstorming, hey, wouldn't it be cool to start a detective club? You know, uh, within a week, there are this little cadre of us that had the little business cards, you know, detect, detective detective club. You know, these, these early initiatives were not necessarily long lasting, but, you know, definitely I uh, was always somebody excited to say, yeah, let's do that. There's a little school newspaper when I was, uh, I think I was in second grade when I did that, you know, wow, that, that started awesome. that. So, you know, it was very low tech back in the day. You know, I remember those 20, 
25 years of experience, but <laughs> but that kind of instinct to say, hey, here's something that we could do. Let let let's get let let's get together and get it done is, I think, something that you know has been with me for for a long time. So there's the having the ideas, there's the taking action, and then there's people actually following you. At what point did you realize that you had the ability to get followers? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think. <laughs> I think, you know, I, you know, I think it's still probably even before college, I would probably say I had that ability. I, um, I, you know, I was actually thinking of a time I, when I didn't get the followers, maybe we can come back to that. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but in high, you know, I remember in high school, I was, um, I was actually elected class president as a sophomore. Then I actually lost probably one of my great early, you know, hurdles I had to overcome. I lost uh, at, at, when I was a junior and then sort of came back with a big plan to come back and win and be, you have a big successful senior year, which I did. And, and, you know, one of the things I, so, so that was an early time I was able to get, um, get my classmates very excited about some ideas I had for our senior class. Um, one of my campaign promises was to try to break a Guinness book of world records for a uh, longest volleyball game ever. And it's going to be this crazy volleyball ball marathon and raise a lot of money for our scholarship fund. And we negotiated it down. We wound up not being able to do the 77 hours we needed to break the record, but we negotiated with the school committee and principal 24 hours and, and still raised a lot of money and got, a, got a, I think, a, about 100 kids participated. And so, so yeah, yeah it's even, very impressive. even as a teen, I felt like I had that ability to sort of get people, get people working with me on things. Yeah, it's, and it's served you really well. You've obviously been attracted to and willing to take on leadership roles throughout your profession. Uh, how did each of those sort of call to you? And how did you know that they were a right fit? Hmm. That, that's a good question. Um, you know, maybe, you know, another, I guess like I do really feel, I, I'm highly intuitive, I would say. So I sort of really believe in like listening to my inner voice and I'm definitely the kind of person that like percolates. There are a lot of ideas I've hatched up, you know, in the shower or on long walks that, you know, have never gotten up the drawing board. Probably some that's maybe too bad, probably some that's maybe a good thing. But, you know, I think feel like when the inner voice really speaks, you know, I feel like sometimes it just speaks a little louder and says, this is you, you know, something aligning it. I feel like you got to listen to that. And definitely starting Social Capital Inc. was like that. Um, you know, I, I don't know, I could briefly elaborate on that sure, if, please. if that makes sense, because I think it illustrates the point. You know, I had just moved back to the town I grew up in, uh, Woburn, Mass., 10 miles north of Boston. And you know, was trying to sort of think about how to reconnect to the community I grew up in as an adult and get engaged. And then I read this book called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam, which talks a lot about the decline of you know community American communities in the last part of the 20th century. And so it was very interesting reading this book. You know, I, I like to read these sorts of things, and at the same time having this experience, you know, of trying to really you know play how does community change, how does my community change, and stuff like that. And as I was going through the book, and there's a lot of bad news in there, you know, about, you know, people aren't joining clubs, they're not doing this, they're not doing a lot of, a lot of downward trends and graphs, you know, in that book. And, and by the final chapter of that book, um, by, by, you know, was my call to action. It was sort of saying somebody needs to pick up and 
figure out what are the new civic institutions in the 21st century that sort of will engage uh, neighbors and, and bring people together in the 21st century. And people, and, he, and, and he sort of talked about, you know, used historical analogy of the progressive era and how different different institutions that we know today were formed in the, you know, kind of tur turbulence of that era. And basically says now, okay, we need that to happen again. Uh, and, and I was finishing that book on a flight to San Francisco and I literally was almost ready to jump off the plane and say, yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm signing up. I'm going <laughs> to figure out, I didn't know like I was going to start this organization yet, but I was very sure that I wanted to figure out how to be part of the solution to the problem that, that he was describing. And, and, you know, again, I've had that experience before but you know it's definitely particularly loud that it's just like you know you know and, and I think the other thing it's inner voice but it's like different pieces of my life sort of coming you know together you know that that sort of that's part of why it was powerful because you know built on experiences I had spoke to things I was really interested and passionate on and the timing seemed right so that book is had such a huge impact on so many of us I remember reading it in the late 90s uh, it was right before I moved to Boston. I think I was coming here uh, every other weekend from New York where I grew up in Long Island. And just it, it, the influence it's had on me. I actually started Socializing for Justice, which is maybe another way we know each other in Boston, um, in 2006. And that was one of the books that uh, I was influenced by, this idea that we needed to start creating opportunities for people to connect again and engage and largely it influences the way I think about the work that I do in the world now around community building. Um, one of the ways you and I know each other is through Lead Boston, the senior executive leadership program that the YW Boston hosts. And um, I know you're a graduate from many years before me, but I, I got to know you because I'm hosting these monthly informal socials for alums and of all classes. And, and again, that those kinds of civic opportunities to engage, connect, and then find ways to like build from that. Um, yeah, that, that book, I'm glad you mentioned it. I'll put it in the show notes for anyone who hasn't actually had a chance mm -hmm. to read it. Cause I think it'll be a good reference point and maybe it'll spark in them in this current era. Like we still need these institutions and now we have tools like meetup.com, which also was very influenced by Putnam, uh, Robert Putnam's book, um, that we can now, you can literally just start a group and see where it goes. And, you know, maybe it'll turn into something huge like yours did. So what, what's been really, um, I guess, rewarding? What's the most rewarding part of the work you're doing today with Social Capital Inc.? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, as I think about it, as you mentioned in the intro, you know, we've grown to serve, I think you mentioned the number across the state, we're serve 19 communities across Massachusetts now. And part of what I love about the work we do is, you know, I'm able to have this kind of a broad impact across the region, but at the same time, uh, you know, doing the work in a deep way in my community, I think really uh, has particular meaning to me. And I remember being asked the question in the early days of starting the organization, like, how will you know if your organization succeeded? And one of the things that was really interesting to me is that I was coming back to my community, at a, you know, which was not very diverse when I grew up there and went through the public school system, but is now relative to that, quite diverse in terms of race and ethnicity and so forth. And so I was very interested in how do you have our community be welcoming and inclusive for everyone, whether you've been here for three generations or three months. And so um, 
so part of what I would talk about success, you know, we had to have measurements and numbers, but I said success would really look like when you, you know, if you go to a city council meeting or, you know, board of directors of the YMCA or Boys and Girls Club, the, you know, the civic, key civic institutions, it would look like the increasingly diverse community because clearly at our starting time as an organization, you know, there's a bit of a disconnect, which I would say is there to some degree now as well. But definitely with Stark, you know, the fact that you, you wouldn't know if you went into a lot, you know, City Hall, for instance, that the community had become more diverse. So I wanted to be a part of changing that. And so one thing that's very rewarding to me is at this time when I think, you know, issues of, you know, inclusion and wel being welcoming are so salient given the political climate, uh, to see that I think these values are really being embraced in a pretty strong way in our community is very exciting to me. In fact, I went to a our community, Woburn is celebrating its 375th anniversary this year, and there's a kickoff event about a month ago. And I had like very marginal, I think I went to one planning meeting. It was one of those things I couldn't get too involved in. So, you know, other than us promoting this event through our social media and website, you know, we weren't on the planning committee or anything, but I went to the kickoff event and I was struck about how attentive the organizers were to celebrating the diversity of the community and, you know, both currently and over history. You know, in fact, this the final performance of the day was from, uh, you know, a band from... Uh, from Kenya and or Zimbabwe, excuse me, and they were so dynamic, so wonderful. And the fact that, you know, I can't take sole credit for that, I wasn't mm -hmm. on the committee, but I do feel like, you know, when you're trying to do the kind of work I'm doing, you're trying to have influence that goes beyond, you know, the programs you run. And I sort of look at that, I feel like, you know, I do feel like this sort of part of our zeitgeist in the community now is, you know, it has a lot of the stuff we've been talking about for 15 years kind of baked in a little bit more to the culture. And again, not trying to take sole credit for that, but I think clearly I think we're part of, you know, what's been nudging us in that direction. That sounds very familiar to me. And I, I want to I just name that as a success. And it's one of those successes that you can't uh, always, you, you can't quantify. Um, you just have to know it's a success. It's hard to get funding for that kind of work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're just like, right. we, we've done this thing in 15 years. Uh, we uh, we host uh, Socializing for Justice, which is a grassroots uh, community network that I run, a progressive cross-issue community network. We would host these um, annual uh, retreats and talk about sort of, you know, in five years, how will Boston be better because of the work we were doing? And what we ultimately came up with every year was if if the mission and values of our work, of this idea of collaboration and inclusion – if that just became spread, that idea spread and people were using it, not, they didn't even know where it came from, but that people were sharing more, sharing more resources, you know, being more abundant with their resources, that that would feel like success. And 10 years ago, people were, it was before the sharing economy. So literally no one, no one thought about sharing. And then we went through a recession and people said, oh, I guess we should start thinking about how to work together. And I do mm -hmm. think the economics maybe helped along our cause a little bit um, but also the, the increasing diversity, right? The demographics have also pushed the welcoming piece. It's it's great to hear the work you're doing. I lived in Woburn for a minute uh, when I first <laughs> landed in Boston. It was actually my first address uh, was right there uh, by the auto parts store. <laughs> so, nice. um, so it's really great to think about how much has changed and the influence you've had. What's What's been really... Um, challenging about the work you've done either now or maybe another time and and 
how did you overcome those kinds of challenges? Yeah, one one challenge that comes to mind is we were this was going back maybe about four or five years ago. I think we're we've always as an organization, like a lot of organizations, it's sometimes challenge to get to how do you get beyond the startup to that next level of growth and you start feeling you're big enough, you feel like you need all these staff positions, but you don't really have the budget for it, so everybody's, you know, stretched a little thin. And so we knew we needed that. So how do we how do we get that next big jump as an organization? And for for about a year to 18 months, it looked like there was a national funder that was interested. It sounded very serious about funding us to expand to other cities, uh, you know, across the country. Some of the cities they were interested in, and, and it looked like that was going to be the big thing, you know. And I made several, you know, quite a few trips, to, you know, you know, sp- you know, uh, pursuing that, and 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 kind of put some of the local program development on hold in terms of growth and so forth. And then there's some big changes at that foundation before we got our grant. And, and I was like, boom, you know, okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was our growth plan that we're working on for like 12 to 18 months. What do we do now? And so that was, you know, that was a big disappointment. But I think, you know, we had to think how to bounce back. And so we, you know, it was kind of good timing. We connected with someone that was willing to help us with strategic planning, uh, you know, on a very reasonable basis, uh, and it, it did a great job. And we sort of did a new strategic plan that helped us think about actually number one, uh, growing more regionally. And that's kind of when we went at that point, we were serving about 10 or 11 Massachusetts communities. And, and so then this is about three years ago now. And so when we finished the plan and so, you know, we really focus more on a regional growth as opposed to, you know, trying to be in Miami, you know, as attractive as that might be in the winter, winter in Boston, you know, that, and to some extent, you know, I think that did two things. One is, you know, honestly, it would have been a big stretch to have off, you know, at the time we were, that I was getting on a plane to, you know, go to meetings in Miami, you know, there were four people back at the home office, not counting our, you know, 20 some odd full-time AmeriCorps members, but in terms of the central office. So it would have been a big stretch to open in a far flung location. Uh, But building regionally really, I mean, it builds on our values more too, because, you know, part of what we've been doing is, you know, we're about, so one of the lessons I think is, you know, one is building on our strengths. You know, we, you know, we have, you know, we're intentional about networking and, and cultivating our context. So we had a lot more, you know, not to say I couldn't find, you know, connections in places like Miami or other destinations we might travel further away, but, you know, we had a lot of strong ties that we could really build upon to, uh, to expand within this region. And so once we decided we were going to do that. And we also targeted a couple issue areas that were timely youth success as well as health and wellness, how those inter- issues intersect with social capital. It really enabled us to really do some, you know, pretty rapid growth that, that I think made more sense for us in retrospect. I think this is a really interesting thing around, well, most times people think success is getting bigger and bigger and scaling bigger and bigger and bigger. Chapters all around the country, all around the world, but you lose something if you do that, or particularly if you do that too fast, and that for you is about deepening sort of the engagement and the connections and the networks that you had regionally. And so there's, there's this concept of um, instead of scale, there's spread. And mm. so there's this way in which if you deepen your work here, you're now known nationally as a model. So you're spreading ideas, whether you're implementing them or not, you're now able to showcase here, here are the, here's the work you do and here are the results 
if you can put if you put this effort in, this is something that could happen. And now you're probably part of national conversations around this with other people who are doing it in their own area. And it's not coordinated in the same way it would be if you were running it. But you're you're spreading your ideas as opposed to scaling everything. And you really saw the value in the sort of hyper local. And I I share that belief that I think that we having people on the ground who really know the community that could be a piece of the puzzle for how to be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that that kind of approach really worked well for us. And you know, the other the other way that I think that approach helps is, I mean, frankly, as I think about it, if we had done that national expansion, like I wouldn't be able to be a coach on my son's little league team, as a for instance. You know, that I think sometimes we forget the potential personal trade offs we make too as leaders. You know, and how those decisions factor in and. And, you know, as I think about, you know, my where I'm at in my career, I think I mentioned sort of as we were just chatting informally, you know, my son's 11 now. I could see, you know, maybe down the road, he's a little more established off on his own path, you know, we're not able to drive himself to practices and, and so forth that, you know, then maybe that's a, a time I might be in position, more in position to feel like I could be doing more national level travel and stuff more regularly without sacrificing important things on the home front. But, but now I feel like that balance that I've been able to strike in part because I can be up in Salem in the morning and still, you know, do a school pickup, you know, in the afternoon if need be, you know, that, that sort of fits my lifestyle well. And, and to some extent it goes back to, you know, having that kind of balance the more folks have that kind of balance, the more they're going to be able to engage in their communities too. And again, so it syncs up with our mission. Right. You need to live the values that you're trying to teach other people. You can't be like fried and, you know, uh, unable to sort of balance your own life. And actually one of the questions I often ask my guests is, you know, given how much time and dedication it takes to do the work and that these days the line between work and home are getting blurry. You know, you no longer just close the office door and go home. You, you bring devices home with you where you can like interact all day all weekend all night what what does self-care look like for you do you have any practices or purposeful sort of plans that you you put in place yeah probably the two big ones are you know i love going for a walk we live right by a nice pond that is great you know you got a couple mile walk in in the morning and you know it's right there um and that that that's 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 the form of exercise that works best for my my body at this point as opposed to running i'm running so a nice walk you know uh, half an hour 45 minutes in the morning is a great fresh start to the day and i love to cook and enjoy the fruits of my labor so so it's kind of i'd say like opening with a walk my ideal day opens with a nice walk and closes with cooking cooking a good meal and enjoying with family and sometimes friends i saw you have a passion project with cooking Uh, yes i definitely do i'm pretty 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 serious about it and uh, in fact i've always been interested in food it builds community right but you know i know i met your son out at an event when you took took him to a restaurant i we hunkered down a little more when our guy was was your son's age yeah. and we were like oh man we can't go to those fancy restaurants we like anymore <laughs> i better figure out how to do it at home so that really uh amped up my cooking game i think actually to create the good food without having to travel I um I basically asked for an outgoing extrovert for a child, and that's what I got. <laughs> I, I, I can I can uh, vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll just sit there and hang out with us adults for an hour as long as he's got food in front of him. He's happy. He's a right. toddler who's happy to hang out with adults. It's really nice. kind of something. <laughs> we'll nice. see how long it lasts. <laughs> so you know, speaking of, of things that might be a struggle, 
you know, whenever you're striving for success, is that fear of, of being wrong or even failing? Tell us a little something about what you're not good at and how do you deal with that? Hmm. I'd definitely say, though I can deal with and understand, appreciate the importance of a lot of small details, it's not my forte, clearly. And, um, you know, so, you know, I'm thinking, and certainly, you know, the CEO, executive director of a nonprofit, you need, you know, the, the, the budget and stuff like that and tracking the finances is important. So I think definitely finding ways to, um, balance, you know, making sure there are people on the team, both, you know, and sometimes at a small nonprofit, that means on staff. Sometimes that means, you know, having a strong board treasurer or, and, or, you know, other people are willing to provide input and support on it, I think is, is key. So, um, and then I think, I th- so that I, I thought of the finance example specifically, but I think also, trying to hire also when just in general hiring people that are it's easy in interviewing to hire people that are like oh yeah I really click quick click with so and so and you know and that can be great because you can feel like oh yeah you're always on the same page but you can also sometimes especially on a small team have similar strengths and leave similar you know some holes in the organization one thing I'm pleased about where we are at as an organization now I think Right now, we've got a team, you know, still small on the small side, but, you know, we do complement each other nicely. And that is, you know, I think to our AmeriCorps program manager as an example of somebody who, you know, is a bear for details. And that's great if you have a federal grant, you know, some, somebody's got to be making sure all those I's are dotted and T's are crossed to keep, keep, keep that money coming. So I think it's another sign of leadership is knowing what you're good at and what areas you need other people to step in. It's sort of, and I also speak with a lot of entrepreneurs and, and uh, another way to look at it is like, what is your time worth? You mm-hmm. know, and if, if you put a dollar amount to it and you wouldn't be willing to pay someone else that amount to do this work, well, then you should farm it out because you're paying yourself that amount, <laughs> essentially, mm-hmm. you know, that time's gone. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's important to sort of see where, where those, I guess you said, like holes are on the team. But I also think it's really hard when you're hiring to hire people i i joke about this all the time with people who are looking for a job it's like they particularly a nonprofit. they say oh i just want a job in nonprofit. i'm like that didn't ring any bells like you need to be more specific <laughs> yeah right <laughs> you know and i just explained to them like the hiring process is exhausting for the hiring manager and if you came to them with a really clear sense of like what you were looking for what experience you had to share clear enthusiasm for their mission they would be so excited to meet you if you followed through and actually you know applied with a a well put together application resume cover letter like that would rise you right to the top more than all the other things that people tell you to do to hustle for a job you know it's just like they would be so pleased <laughs> to have met you and see mm-hmm. the connection um i think a lot of times you know people overlook the fact that they're offering something of value when they're looking for a job they think they're just like needing something but mm-hmm. as you said like if you can find the right person for that role it's brilliant, you know, and then you're like, I have this great team and now we can actually focus on the mission and not the hiring, <laughs> which, which is a big piece of the work often. Right. Yeah, definitely. That's great advice. And I think that, yeah, I mean, granted the, the, the economy's improved a bit, so it's changed a little bit, but even still, you know, for a, for a good job, that good job there, you're still getting a lot of resumes and the person that's thoughtful about that and can really articulate 
their strengths and actually looks like they've got on your website and can link <laughs> their strengths to your organization. Right. Man, they, you'd be surprised at how few people do that as opposed to, you know, relying on the technology that enables them to apply, you know, yeah. to 50 places without doing that kind of research. So I, tell me a little bit more about the, the day-to-day work that social capital is doing. Cause I think it's so fascinating how you're helping people think about how to access what's out there, like this, this network, this capital that's there for them. Yeah, definitely. We have a few kind of what's evolved for us is a few key areas of programming that, that have consistently been things that people seem to want as far as need, are needed in communities. And then also that there are some people willing to fund as well. So one of the big ones is around like youth leadership. So when we, going back to that Bowling Alone book, which I know not everybody's read, but the basic premise, one argument in the book was that one of the problems is we haven't trained the next generation of young uh, leaders to be active citizens or, and active in their community. So it sort of makes sense if we want to increase civic engagement over time that we ought to spend a good amount of our time developing young people's capacity to be engaged in their communities. So we have a youth leadership track of our work in uh, a youth leadership curriculum that part of the idea is to figure out that young, young people tend to have a lot of passions about things they want to change in their communities, but they might need some skills in terms of how to work with their peers and adults in the community to get things done. So a big one piece of our work is engaging youth in service and leadership projects to improve their community. And we carry that out by partnering with youth-serving organizations, places like Boys and Girls Clubs, Girls Inc., and other community centers that run youth programs and and offer our curriculum, and in some cases also an AmeriCorps member who coordinates the youth leadership, the youth leadership groups. Um, and then in other cases, we have staff, um, existing staff at an agency that get, get trained in our model. So I, I was wondering, yeah. you started this in 2002. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's like 15 years later mm-hmm. and so much technology has changed in that mm-hmm. time. I'm curious as you work with young people, I, I, my premise for my business is that in this Facebook world, we've forgotten how to do FaceTime and mm-hmm. I don't mean the app. I mean, <laughs> I mean the actual face to face networking that is such a crucial part of, of daily life and, and getting progress and done anything done. Uh, so how have you seen the shift from when you first started working with young people and then today and through the years? And, like, and you know, it's interesting to think that people you started working with 15 years ago are now in their 30s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yes, and, and, and they're applying yeah. what they learned, right? They're, so there's that too, like the alumni piece of it. But, but how has the technology shifted or, or changed the way they communicate? And how are they learning to use these tools? And po- I mean, the tools are wonderful. I love all the online tools. But to still know how to like go to a meeting and make a case, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a, there's a lot, a lot to that question. I'm thinking I could take it from a couple angles. One is, and I think there's a little bit of a side note to, to what your, the core of your question. But one thing I find is there's like this assumption that because young people have a comfort level with the uh, mechanics of the technology, that they know how to use the technology to communicate effectively. So actually we, one piece of the work we wind up doing is we do, we'll do, we've done a number of trainings with youth groups that are 
you know, one, actually figure out how to leverage what they do on social media to actually accomplish their goals. So we will, so a lot of, a lot of what we're doing is getting them to think about how to blend. So I think this is actually getting to what you're mm-hmm. getting at a little yeah. bit that, you know, just because they have, you know, a zillion, you know, a zillion people that are connected to them on Facebook, they don't really know how to take that and say, all of a sudden I'm trying to influence are you, this is a real example. In Chelsea, you know, we were, when we first started working in the Chelsea community uh, just outside of Boston, predominantly lower-income community, they were trying to influence um, the healthy and culturally sensitive options available to kids in the high school cafeteria. That was their goal. You know, how to take from how to take this general idea of gee, use social media. How, how might that actually apply to our goal and getting getting the teens to be able to think strategically um, about how to um, how to execute you know you know have the goal think of you can do power mapping you know who are key players in their community and then yeah wh- what piece does social media play in in it but what piece does you know going to a school committee meeting and how do you do that kind of thing so we wind up doing you know, how do you blend? What's the right mix of of the 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 technology, new technology with the old school? You know, and we do, and I think this is getting at. I'm thinking back up to some trainings we were doing in Gloucester, uh, up on the North Shore of Massachusetts, where kids are doing some great work to try to um, prevent substance abuse uh, up there. And but a lot of it was basic training on how to, you know, how to shake hands with an adult and, and so forth and like, you know, make them come back until they shake the hand and make the eye contact. That's wonderful. So, I, yeah. yeah, it's one of the pieces of the training are the schmooze that I offer. And I, 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 when I first started offering this training, uh, you know, six, yeah, about six years ago, I didn't think that I had to teach people how to handshake, but it became quickly evident that that was not something that everyone was used to doing and that we're more used to like doing things with our thumbs, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like <laughs> we're yeah. used to texting each other right. um, more than we know how to shake. Um, so I, I want to, um, I have a couple more questions here and I realize we're, we're kind of coming into the end of our time, but this is just a good conversation. Um, as your professional network has grown, as you've changed jobs, your career has taken off, you've changed states, you're a guy who really clearly understands the value of social capital. So I imagine you have some intention around how you've stayed in touch, how you've nurtured and stewarded this network that you have. Do, like, do you have any, or is it happenstance? <laughs> like maybe it's, maybe I'm giving you too much credit, but <laughs> what, what does it look like to sort of build and nurture a professional network? Yeah. I mean, that is, that is a key question. And I think key to success over time, you know, I think, I think some of it, some of it, you know, I find when I do try to teach, you know, whether it's through a formal workshop or just kind of coaching, um, you know, staff or AmeriCorps members on our team, I think, you know, some of it comes a little easier to some of us. Some of the stuff is intuitive and it's like breaking down what, what kind of comes natural to me and how can I name some of the steps, steps I'm taking. So, I mean, some of the things I think I've done kind of organically over time is found you know, people like yeah, it's great to have like LinkedIn, you can stay in touch with, you know, in Facebook as well, a thousand plus people have some light level of contact. And, and sure, it's I think I do try to be present on those in those spaces and update, uh, update there. So people can keep posting. But who, who are those people you really click with, where you feel like there's a lot of alignment in terms of that you enjoy spending time with? I mean, and, and really making a point, like when I was living in Kentucky, there were a couple of people that had been 
you know, adults that were, when I was in college and even in high school, um, leaders and program, youth programs I had been involved with. And, you know, when I came back uh, visiting there from Kentucky, I'd make sure I had lunch with at least one of them. You know, it just kind of, it was kind of natural. I didn't need to check it off. It kind of was, oh, it's what you do. You know, <laughs> you're back in town, you reach out to your key people. Um, you know, I was going to see family anyway at holiday gatherings, but, you know, you know, making a point to have lunch with key people. And one of those people I have actually two of the people that are, I'm thinking of, you know, both, one was the founding board chair of Social Capital Inc. So, you know, those lunches, you know, the annual lunches over the years, you know, for probably a dozen years was nothing more than, you know, just catching up and swapping notes and so forth. But then there was, and sometimes then there's a time and a place that that relationship needs to be, you know, called upon to, you know, see, is there, is there some, deeper engagement we want to have together, I think. So, you know, I think having a network that both has, you know, some breadth, but but also, you know, being thoughtful about who are some of the deeper connections that you want to, you know, keep um, keep keep closer tabs in and, and more intentionality to, I think is pretty key. It totally is key. Uh, I imagine your work also has you going to some conferences throughout the year. Is this a, a part of the work that you do? Are you traveling yeah. a bit? Yeah, to some degree. You know, I think I think I do those things in waves. I probably don't. Tra- I don't travel to a lot of national level conferences now. You know, because when we made that, you know, one thing that was helpful about making a strategic decision to grow locally that sort of influenced. Okay, I need to go to the local the yeah. state conferences more. And for and I mentioned we also were doing some more targeting of specific issues. So, for instance, we were health the health um, like so health and wellness space was new. So, kind of I think being more strategic, like you know I you know for instance, especially in the last few years when we've had that as a focus, maybe I you know sometimes knock on to the annual conference on volunteer volunteerism, but sent a staff person to that because I've been there so many times mm-hmm. that frankly the you know sometimes there's value to going to connecting so I still will do that sometimes but you know the growing edge might be going to learn more about health the health space because mm-hmm. I don't and there's more to learn there I mean I think I think one thing I've learned about I do try to be I find the longer I'm in the in the same roughly the same space the more strategic I try to be about choosing what things I say yes to that take me, you know, take me out of the office. And I think, you know, um, I think that's helpful, you know, and, and then, you know, I still will go to something like, dang, I probably shouldn't have been, been, you know, spent the afternoon at XYZ event, Mm -hmm. uh, because I didn't really feel like I had any great new insights or connections, but, you know, you try to, even when I go to those things, you try to at least take something out of it. Uh, but I, I actually, the, the sort of cost, both time and, and money of going to things, whether it's local or a weekends or you're traveling to something. And I'm, I'm actually writing a book on, on, uh, building your professional network and, and particularly the skills of going to conferences and conventions mm-hmm. And how to inclusively and effectively network at these spaces, mm-hmm. so that you're you are feel like you're getting a value, whether it's you know the content's yep. one piece, but the community that's another piece, and often is overlooked. So, right. are you intentional or have any practice of what you do before you go to these kinds of spaces, or any tips when you're at a, a conference for like how yeah. to how to make it 
like worth your while like to meet people? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, one thing I try to do is if, if, if I mean, maybe not healthcare, you know, you know, is in a place maybe where I'd present, but if there's a chance to present, certainly, obviously that's a great, like, that's sort of step one that doesn't always obviously make sense. Um, I, I try to, I, a lot of places now will put the attendance list up. I definitely try to look at that, um, see if there are people I know going already, that's helpful, but also just also seeing if there are organizations that I think would be fruitful to connect with. I try to do that. I also, I, I love Twitter. Twitter is probably my favorite social media platform. And so I will, um, I'll typically see if there's a conference hashtag and I'll try to follow along, uh, follow along, uh, you know, what people are tweeting. And I'm, I do, I'm a little bit of a restless type. So I do have trouble just sitting there and, you know, kind of, especially if I'm engaged in the topic and, and they're not, there's not a chance to ask questions. So I, one thing I've found is, you know, Twitter's a chance to actually engage, offer my commentary on an issue. And sometimes that's a great way to connect. And I'll start having chats like, hey, let's meet, let's meet at the coffee break, you know, that's somebody who, who we seem to be resonating with on Twitter. Uh, so that's, that's a practice that I like to, to use where it makes sense. That's great. I actually I covered a number of those. I just did a webinar for an association to talk about this. And I love hearing real live examples of of Twitter being used because I, I agree it's a great back channel, a great way to connect with people who are like minded and interested, and you don't you're never alone if you if you log into Twitter when you're at these big events. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, if you had the opportunity to speak to yourself when you were 25, what advice would you give yourself uh, to build a, a strong uh, and supportive professional network? Sure. You know, two thoughts come to mind. One, one is pretty specific to founding an organization, so that might be applicable to to some of your listeners. I, you know, I definitely with Social Capital Inc. sort of went the sort of lone founder route, and ultimately it worked out. But at times that can be a you know, I mean, when I say lone founder, certainly I obviously had a board and so forth. But day to day, I mean, I was literally sitting in the office I'm sitting in now by myself for 12 months. I mean, not not all the time. Obviously, I was out meeting a lot, but there's nobody else who was, you know, coming here on a daily basis. And that that was that was tough. Um, and I think I can look at and th- then also some of my initial team members were people, you know, my first person that <laughs> was reporting to join me in, in the quest to build social capital was through an AmeriCorps placement. And that was great. And he, 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 did, he did important work, but it was different than I, I think of some other examples sort of in the, some of your listeners might be familiar with City Air or Citizen Schools, other Boston area nonprofits that both had co-founders. And if I had to do it again, I would at least explore that option, <laughs> you yeah. know, because I think you know, when I think about both of those examples, you know, the, the power of having two people that are both, you know, pretty skilled and experienced, you know, who probably, you know, I don't know the story of how they divvied up, how Alan and Michael at City are divvied up what they did, but they obviously bring different th- skills and networks to the table. And and just could brainstorm with each other, right? Yeah. Like you, you were sitting in your own head the whole time. So this idea mm-hmm. of don't, don't have to go it alone, lone wolf, but like, Think about how you can collaborate more effectively with people. I mean, that's a really good takeaway. Hopefully, yeah. your, your 25-year-old self would have listened to you. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I obviously found other ways to build that kind of support in, but, but I do think if I, if I could return a clock back, I might explore that idea a little bit more. The second thing that came to mind that's probably applicable to everyone is, and I, I struggle with this, especially at a small organization, is you know, there are moments in, you know, something that's just the organization's life cycle or just the annual cycle. Like, for instance, we have our big annual fundraising event at the end of March. And there are definitely times when it's easier to hunker down and feel like, you know, I can't do any of this networking stuff for the next month, six weeks, two months. And you just can go into a mode where you're just, you know, I just got to be about Project X because it's so big, so important. And not to say, not to say that, that never should happen, but I definitely find over time that I'm getting to a place where I try not to get into a mode like that for very long. And even if, you know, like I'm looking at the month ahead, I'm still going, you know, I'm looking at a number of networking things I'm still going to put on the calendar because, you know, part of it's, I alluded to, you know, I feel like we've got that team that, you know, I, I know that there's strong folks that will be back at the office if I'm at a networking breakfast or, you know, having coffee with somebody. But, um, but, but, but just kind of not just sort of throwing, I think if you're leading an organization or in a, the kind of roles I think a lot of your listeners are, you know, you really want to be always sort of, you know, I think networking, it's like, it's like, it's like, you know, the little ass of the farm. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you know, yeah. uh, you don't just plant the seeds and harvest the next day. You know, if you're not, if you're not cultivating that network all the time, you know, if you're not giving it the water it needs and nurturing it, um, uh, you know, it's hard to jumpstart if you've spent three months without, you know, having any networking time and any cultivation of new uh, leads for your organization and that sort of thing. And the worst case scenario is you need something from your network that you have not been talking to and you mm -hmm. try to then, you know, tap your network and they're like, who, who are you? We haven't seen you in a while. We don't. And then it feels like you're asking for something too much when mm -hmm. if you've been offering, offering, offering all along that ask mm -hmm. will be, oh, I'd love to give back. We'd love to support you. So you're right. Yeah. Like you can't ignore it until you need it. You need to be always nurturing it. So Amen. <laughs> if we, I know if we could just sum that up into a bumper sticker, everyone, please mm -hmm. take that away. Um, mm -hmm. So when uh, one of the questions I'd like to close with is if we met a year from now, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm glad to know that we will probably run into each other more often than that. But a year from now, we're chatting about all of the things that you've accomplished in this past year what kinds of things will we be celebrating? Ooh, I mean, definitely the first that comes to mind, I, I mean, we've touched upon this earlier that, you know, we we are very dedicated to this idea of, of communities that are inclusive and welcoming to everyone, you know, and um, and I, I would like to t talk to you about in a year from now how we've had a lot of wins and, you know, it might take a while before the national climate is, you know, it's going to probably take time before that's the case, uh, you know, from a national policy standpoint. But I think in a year, and part of our our thing is, what can we do in our communities? You know, there's going to be stuff going on at a national level that we can, we can, you know, there are things we can do, obviously, by way of advocacy. But what can we put our arms around and control what that would that happen in Woburn and Chelsea and Gloucester and Boston and places where we work 
to make everybody feel, you know, that this is our community. Uh, and they, they would say that in a lot of different languages and not be worried about doing that. Uh, so in, in fact, that might, that's literally where I'm going after it. We chat as a meeting with our local, local Brazilian community uh, with that end in mind. So um, yeah, I feel like that's, you know, there's a lot of other stuff in our grant goals and objectives, but that's, you know, that, that's definitely where the passion is right now. That would be huge. It's such an impact. So what are the ways people can follow you or learn more about your work? Yeah, definitely. So our website is socialcapitalinc.org, and we're across most of the social media, but in particular, we're at socialcap, and I'm at David B. Crowley at, on Twitter. Uh, those, are t- those are two good ways, and I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook as well, so uh, yeah. both personally and organizationally, where it should be pretty easy to find. Yeah, I'll put links to all those places in the show notes. So that folks can can uh, check you out and hopefully get more engaged and think about how to bring these ideas back to their own hometown and get to know their neighbors. So thank you so much for chatting with us. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David Crowley. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. One of the things that stood out for me was how much Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, strongly influenced David's career trajectory. Have you had a moment of inspiration like this that helped you understand your purpose? Like David, I had an aha moment when reading on a plane on my way to a conference. The book was Community, The Structure of Belonging by Peter Block. The text gave me language for the philosophies I'd come to believe about community building. What books have inspired you? Share them in the comments and the show notes at onthechmooze.com, episode 49. I also appreciated the challenges David shared around whether and how to scale his organization. In the end, focusing regionally led to more rapid growth and expanding nationally, but that felt a bit counterintuitive to common wisdom. In my own experience as co-founder of Socializing for Justice, a grassroots cross-issue community and network in Boston, focusing hyperlocal and willingly spreading our practices and philosophies to other organizations around the country gave us a stronger foundation than if we had tried to scale nationally in our earliest years. It also helped us broaden and deepen our network and increase our influence as a social justice organization. Scaling can be a great idea, but the infrastructure to support that expansion needs to be in place to avoid your team feeling burnt out or you not meeting your own high standards of service. And I want to underscore what David said about using Twitter to strategically network at conferences. Similar to David, I have found live tweeting sessions to to be a great way to stay focused on the content, while also attracting fellow attendees with shared interests. It has also been a great way to capture takeaways that I know I won't lose if I misplace my notebook in the chaos of packing up to go home. Another tip is to create a public Twitter list ahead of the conference. Then, start following the conference hashtag a few weeks before the event, and add to your list people who are tweeting. They will then get a notification when you do, so be sure the name of your Twitter list helps them understand what you have in common. What I love is that you can then click on the Twitter list to focus in on the tweets by people you might actually meet at the event. Spend a few minutes each day liking and retweeting tweets that resonate with you. Don't hesitate to tweet hello and let them know you'll be at the same event in a few weeks. This strategy could lead to a meeting in person, And face-to-face networking is incredibly powerful in a world where liking tweets is considered engagement. Is networking an important 
but your least favorite part of the job? My coaching clients felt the same way. Through a combination of technical tips, accountability, and a bit of inspiration, I help leaders stop wasting time networking and start building great relationships. Later this summer, I'm launching a beta version of a group coaching program. This is a virtual program, so if this sounds like something you'd want to be part of, we should set up a time to chat and see if it's a good fit. Email Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. That's R-O-B-B-I-E at R-O-B-B-I-E-S-A-M-U-E-L-S.com. Do you host a conference or convention and want your attendees to feel that your event was incredibly valuable because of all the connections they made? I work with associations and companies to design events that increase engagement and create a welcoming culture for all attendees, especially your first-time attendees. Do you know someone who might be interested? I would welcome introductions. As a busy solopreneur and work-at-home parent with a toddler, I am juggling a lot of responsibilities. That's why I use Contactually, a robust CRM that's perfect for managing my professional network. I use it to help me manage my most important relationships and the ones I hope will become significant. As an affiliate for Contactually, they're offering my listeners a free trial. Let me know if you sign up for the free trial and I'll help you get set up for success. Visit contactually.com slash invite slash muse for more details. That's Contactually, C-O-N-T-A-C-T-U-A-L-L-Y dot com slash invite slash muse, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. For your convenience, uh, the link to the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 49. And just a reminder that you are encouraged to join my launch team by visiting robbysamuels.com slash launch team. You'll receive an advanced copy of Croissants versus Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking Conferences, and you'll be notified when it'll be available for free on Kindle. All I ask in return is your help spreading the word, and if you feel the book was valuable, that you write a review on Amazon. If you want to discover other business podcasts, check out C-Suite Radio at c-suiteradio.com, where you'll find On the Schmooze in good company with other C-Suite Radio headliners. Before I go, I want to sincerely thank all of you who've already subscribed and left a rating and review in iTunes. By subscribing and leaving a rating and review in iTunes, you're helping this podcast get discovered by more listeners. Will you subscribe and leave an honest rating and review? Include your Twitter and handle in your review so I can give you a shout out. It's easy to find our iTunes page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance, and I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be celebrating reaching 50 episodes by sharing some of my favorite actionable insights from my guests over the past year. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.